0: Good afternoon, good morning, this is Mark Johnson from Alloythee360. In the first part of our interview with renowned author Tom Nichols about his best-selling book, The Death of Expertise, he puts the blame on higher education, the internet, and the explosion of media options for the anti-expertise and anti-intellectual sentiment, which he sees as being on the rise. Now here's the second part of our interview with Tom. So is that just an American phenomenon we're going through? Is it a Western European thing as well? Yeah, Do the Asian societies have this? Or you know, how impactful is this, this kind of death of expertise? It's
1: a, it's a great question. And I will tell you that when I started writing the book, I thought I was writing entirely about Americans. Because if you think about our culture, even the way we talk, right? Americans, are, we're always saying things like, look, or let me, look, let me tell you, or let me, you know, we're, we're very directive. We're very overwhelming. I mean, other cultures notice it about us. And Americans are always, you know, shaking their finger at you and saying, I got to think, this, you know. Um, and then thing, weird things started to happen. I started getting a lot of mail from um, around the world about the article itself. Um, you know, France, Switzerland, Canada. Uh, and then within the first few months of the book's release, um, it went under contract in places like Korea and Japan. Uh, And as as we're sitting here now, the book is available worldwide in 12 foreign languages and was a bestseller in Canada and Italy in particular. So as much as I wanted to believe that it's just arrogant know-it-all Americans, I now think it's the product of developed capitalist societies with high levels of technology, that what really breeds this is affluence and life being easy because people look around and they say, "Well, you know, how hard is it to fly an airplane? How hard is it to send email? Um, how hard is it to cure cancer?" I mean, you know, because you live in an age of miracles, and you just get used to that. And I think that couple that with your opinion is very important, and you think, "Well, I
0: can do any of this stuff, of course." So, so when you that 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 point you make about uh, opinion and knowledge. So how do we, cause right now we don't have a respect for anyone's opinion and let alone anyone's knowledge, right? Because we, the the opinions are usually so far removed from any basis of reality or pragmatic understanding, right? So especially like when people argue with me about statistics and like they start talking about virology, like, oh, you don't understand, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you as a housewife had no idea what virology is about either i know i don't but i can look at the statistics i can look at the people that are dying i can do probability i can run a progression i can run a regression right so i can do that piece you can't do that either but but but
1: again it's not about facts and it's not about skills it's about self-esteem and i think one of the things that's happened that surprised me because i really thought a pandemic in particular would kind of snap us out of this childishness, and it and it didn't it made it worse. Um, it, in some places, it made it worse. And what I, I allude to this in the book that when people take their beliefs about expertise and fuse them to their political identity as a person, okay. it becomes really hard to ever dislodge that. If you have doubled down a hundred times on, um, I don't know, you know, let's try and be even handed about you have doubled down a million times on uh, you know the the icebergs are all going to melt by 2020 right which didn't happen but we heard that one when i was a kid right it was all the world by time right. um, i don't know how old you guys are but when i was a kid a big movie was soylent green by 2025 we were all going to be eating each other i guess i gave away the end of the movie but you know it's a 50 year old movie so live with it Um, You know, that, oh my God, you know, the world is going to be so overpopular, we're literally going to be cannibalizing each other. Um, And yet people won't let go of it. No, it's okay. I was wrong, but I'm only wrong in the time. It's going to happen in the next 10 minutes because you've fused that to your personal identity. It's the same way people have become about COVID. I, you know, this is a hoax. It's meant to hurt the president. Therefore, I, even if I am literally dying of this thing, I mean... I kind of thought it would shake people on when herman cain died you know i'm gonna to go to a rally without a mask and the guy dies and people just literally were like yeah okay you know random random accident let's not talk about it that's what happens when you take your beliefs about the world and fuse them to your sense of who you are as a person and at that point mark when you're talking to somebody and saying look i i know at least i know statistics at least i can on the number They're not hearing that. What they're hearing is, this is an attack on who I am as a person. This is an attack on my identity. And that doesn't make it your fault, but that is the environment you're living in now. When you say to someone, look, you're just, I'm not judging you, but I'm just saying you're wrong about this thing from a factual point of view. People say, so you're saying I'm stupid. So you're saying you don't respect me. No, I'm just saying you're wrong. The world really isn't flat. It just isn't. Well, but, but, and I'm not going to argue this with you, but you know, people say, well, so you're not respecting.
0: Me. No, but you, you talk about Dunning-Kruger, right? Which is, I read about a number of books and lack of metacognition. I mean, to me, that is, that it is extreme narcissism, right? I mean, again, I, I, I'm not a biology guy, a chemistry guy. So when I start looking at these papers that talk about how they're going to cure the disease, that to me, I mean, I'm on Adderall. I don't have to take every Adderall I have just to even kind of get focused in to, to understand because I don't pretend to understand that, right? But I can look at the numbers and people dying and trying. So I can, I can run all those. But to me, to read one article on something as complex as the disease, I have no idea what that means, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many part- times, uh, P, again, the, the, the internet's a part, not the source of this, but it's a big part of it. I can't tell you how many times people said to me, well, why do I need to ask doctors these questions? All of these medical journals are online now. And I said to one, and you know, again, it made, it, it made the guy who was in an audience in a live talk I gave and he, he didn't like this, but I said, those weren't written for you. You, you do not understand what you're reading. They were oh. written for a professional audience who already have medical degrees and years of experience. They, they're not written for you. You don't even know what you're looking at. It's a lot. You're you're saying I'm not smart. I said, no, I'm saying you're not a doctor. This would be like me reading books of architecture or architectural digest and saying, now I'm going to design your house because I think I have a pretty good idea of what a load-bearing wall is.
0: Right. And And I can design one. I got into yesterday with a group too. We're talking about numbers. and stuff. This gentleman had a, uh, we were talking about sports, kids' sports and and depression, right? How I'm much more, I've had a kid who goes to high school, two people have killed themselves for the last three years, three people over the last five. No one in this high school has gotten sick. They're like, well, these kids shouldn't be playing sports. No, no. I'm much more concerned from a numbers perspective about them committing suicide because there's been three over the last five years. So from a probability perspective, it's much more likely my kid will commit suicide. Well, i know someone has committed suicide than anyone getting sick and dying from this disease under 20 in the state of Ohio. And you can tell it to the people face oh, they're going to die. No, no, no. Again, like three people have died in the school. So you look at a probability perspective, but they don't,
1: they don't understand that, right? So this is an old problem. Now, this problem of numbers don't mean anything to me, but my personal experience means everything to me. That's normal human behavior. right? What, right. what is not normal human behavior is the way that has now become welded to people's personal sense of identity what? to the point where they are willing to die for it. Um, I, in the book, I put my toe into a couple of these controversies. Um, the, uh, the veteran suicide issue, um, speaking of suicides, where, you know, it has become a thing, right? There is an epidemic of veteran suicide. There is an increase now here in, as we're sitting here in 2020, for most of the years that people use that term, the numbers weren't there. Even the chief epidemiologist at the VA said, yeah, you know, veteran suicides are up because everybody's suicides are up. Right. But, it, and it was almost, when I would say this in response to people who talked about veterans, I said, well, okay, there is a, you know, it's slight, but it's not part of it. They'd say, how can you hate veterans so much? Why do you hate veterans? I'm like, it's not, I don't, I don't hate veterans. I'm just telling you, I'm not writing the news. I'm just reporting it. But once people fuse those things to their belief system. If I believe that veterans are a particularly aggrieved set of people, I am therefore virtuous. Um, you know. Now, again, just to clarify for anybody listening, there is now a, a, a perceptible increase in veteran suicide, but it's well, unclear why. Part of the problem was that in that previous epidemic, they were counting, you know, middle-aged guys. Of course, middle-aged white males are always the greatest risk. I was once a suicide preventer counselor. So I have a little bit of expertise. I, mean, right. I used to have to go through all the training to become certified in this. Um, you know, middle-aged white males are always the greatest risk of, yeah. of any group in suicide. Um, but they would take, you know, if you were a 55-year-old guy who had once served in the National Guard, you were coded as a veteran suicide. And they were trying to take that and throw those in with guy who has just come back from deployment and has PTSD who kills himself and saying they're all the same. And when you tried to argue this, again, it became very emotional. But you don't care about veterans. No, I care about numbers. I care about reality. Why do we care about this? And I think this is an important thing to add to this discussion. It's not just to have the satisfaction of being right. You you have to get things right to make good policy. Otherwise, it's like treating a hypochondriac for every symptom they have. Doc, I think I have cancer. Okay, well, let's start chemo. Well, If you don't have cancer, chemo is not good for you. Right. Um, You know, and saying that you think you have it is not a reason for a doctor to say, well, if you think so, I guess we have to do it. Um, But that's the society we live in now where we operate very much on perception and feeling and gut instinct rather than the kind of scientific rationalism that built the advanced society we live in now.
0: So to, a couple more questions. How can we fix that as a society? Is it fixable? Does it get worse? I mean, I, I look at what's going on right now in, in society and in, in marketing and brand, it just, it, I think we're so far off base that like even like last night's riots in Kenosha, Again, not that I'm advocating for any way, shape or form, but the narrative to me is just wrong. Again, like at the end of the day, right or wrong, what happened, there's always gonna be, people see half the fact, right? They see the gentleman getting shot, which was horrible, right? But if you look at the, the complete set of facts, double warrant, right? He wrestled with cops. He had a knife in his hand. He's going to his car to get a gun. I'm not saying that's right either way, shape, or form. But to to have this narcissistic outrage, people rioting and burning down the street, it's just I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, I think that
1: that's, I think we're crossing the streams here. I think, um, you know, there is definitely a problem. And I come from a family of police officers. There's definitely a problem with policing. Absolutely. There are a lot of unarmed people getting shot. Um, you know, Absolutely. and I think that, that the threshold for deadly force, um, has gotten ridiculously low. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you know, guy, I mean, shot, guy gets shot seven times. The real issue when it comes to numbers is when people say this is happening every day all over the country, every 10 minutes, you don't really know that you sort of believe that. And just to, again, try to be politically even handed about this. I just had a discussion with a friend who lives in Europe and he said, you know, um, you Americans have to do something about all these crazy protests. Your cities are in flames, and I'm like, um, that might be your perception, but the reality is, America's cities are not in flames. Yes, there are some protests in Portland, and now there are some protests in Kenosha, but this isn't 1960. <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> this isn't 1968, right? And people, you know, people have no historical memory, which is the other part of this problem. And they say, "Oh my God, it's never been like this." I, like when students say to me, when younger students say, my God, the economy's never been this bad. I don't mean during the pandemic, but over the past 10 years, right. routinely undergraduates would say to me, the economy's just never been this bad. And I'm like, kid, it was worse than this when I was your age in the seventies. It's, it's It's been worse in my lifetime. And they look at me and say, that's not possible. And what they really mean is I have never experienced that. So it couldn't have happened. And that is very much all part of this culture of everything is related to my perception, my feeling, my processing of information, and the idea that, um, you know, Mark, you brought up metacognition, the idea that I could step outside of myself and judge whether I am adequately analyzing this problem is almost impossible. Um, I think metacognition, for those that haven't read the book or the Dunning-Kruger stuff, metacognition is the ability to step outside of yourself and know whether you're doing something right. Um, the way I put it, metacognition is what lets a singer, a really good singer say, ah, that didn't sound like Frank Sinatra was great at this, right? Sinatra would stop and say, "Now I popped a P there. Or I, you know, I, I was too breathy, you know, as opposed to your friend at karaoke who butchers a song, comes off the stage and says, I was awesome. Right. That's a guy with no metacognition. That's a guy who just only hears the parts he wanted to hear. Writing is a really important metacognition skill. You have to be able to let go of yourself and read the thing you just wrote as if you didn't write it. Um, you know, athletes have good metacognition. They, they know, you know, a, a baseball player, when he sw- he says, didn't feel, I just felt it. Like, I know that's wrong. Instead of saying, you know, I'm just really good at what I do. Interesting problem here is that the worse you are at something, you tend to be worse at it precisely because you don't know how bad you are at it. Um, so, you don't have that ability. Right. So- and that's why we all need to work with someone else. That's why we have peer review and, um, you know, meetings and, you know, group analysis, because doing it by yourself is never good enough. I
0: shouldn't say never. It's
1: rarely good enough. Unless you're Michelangelo or or Da Vinci, it's generally not good enough.
0: Right, when you mentioned about Michelangelo, you know, no one can paint the Mona, you know, Mona Lisa in the afternoon and then build a bridge across uh, the Thames at, uh, the, in the morning, right? It, 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 those those people are gone. You talk about like a skyscraper and and the, the, the guy laying the, the, the glass or laying the steel girders and then putting glass in. They have those expect you know the, the expertise. And you talk about at your house when you had the fire, right? And how do we fix that? Because I would think if we don't fix it, it becomes just a very, without metacognition, without understanding kind of our weaknesses, we don't have civil discourses again. You know, when I was, you know, in my teens, in the mid eighties, uh, you know, Reagan and the, the sides spoke, right? They had, they, they had, they had a discussion right now. It doesn't seem like we can, cause you mean, it, it's narcissistic. I, 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 I oh,
1: thought we would be forced into it by a disaster, like a pandemic um, we don't have anything that forces us to cooperate anymore. We can live our lives just too independently. It is too easy to live alone. Um, and I'll just, one small example. Um, you know, I think we're probably all old enough to remember cashiers in grocery stores. Um, cashiering was actually a skill. It was not an entry level. Like you could actually make good money as a cashier by being able to punch those things really fast and, you know cat like one ads used to say experienced cashier wanted you can now go to the store shop scan your own stuff on the way out and never act with a, rely on or interact with another human being right but, um, that's more efficient but it's less social
0: right but just at that point right now literally we just got off the meeting just got off a meeting with literally 15 brands talking about emotional loyalty. And that's what they want to get back into it. You know, the American Eagles, the uh, select comfort, sleep number, all those type of brands, food line. I mean, these are brands are just on the call big, big brands. Right. And they want to get more and more of that engaged. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you, you, we're becoming less engaged as a society, but then, you know, the, that, that, that frontline is not just the expertise of making sure everything's right. He's got to talk to you. He's got to be your friend. He's got it's to just, it's just
1: him. something, I think part of the way you overcome this is you just have a lot of normal interactions with other human
0: beings and get used to the idea
1: that other human beings exist in your world. I think the death of expertise itself could be overcome over time by demography. I think younger people are more comfortable um, with the world being a kind of more high tech, faster moving world. Some of what you're seeing here is the last gasp of, an and I say older generation, I mean people my age, um, who you know, feel that they've been left behind by how fast the world changed. Um, I worry that, the, that while this younger generation is more tech savvy and more digitally literate, because I think that, remember the people that are the biggest suckers on the internet are not kids on Twitter, it's old people on Facebook. They are the single biggest problem when it comes to believing fake news and getting sucked in by scams if you're over 55 and retired and sitting on Facebook, you are a walking mark for most of these manipulations. That is going to solve itself demographically over time. Now, whether the younger generation overcomes, you know, this affluence and general boredom that unfortunately is part of growing up in the 21st century, I don't know, but I'm I'm a little bit optimistic I I I thought we could maybe change things through education. I don't think that really doesn't. I think better socialization is what's gonna change that. And I think that, you know, the kind of younger folks coming up, um, I think are going to be a more social and more interconnected group of people than the certainly than the millennials or the Xers have been. I actually think the Xers are the best generation. I'm 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 a post boomer what they call Generation Jones. I'm like too old for Gen X, too young for, Gen Jones, uh, generation, uh, for the boomer generation. Um, and I think the Xers have a kind of good savvy cynicism about everything that I, I kind of like. So I, I'm, I think some of this will solve itself through demographics. And the only answer is going to be patience as well as changes increasingly that are making us rely on each other more <laughs> and more.
0: So you mentioned uh, 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 well, obviously Vietnam didn't pull people. but World War II pulled people together. Some of the, the Cold War may have pulled people together. If we don't have that, is is that a is that a big challenge?
1: Uh, yeah, I think the absence of the Cold War is a big deal. Um, and the absence. I mean, I'm not arguing for drafting people again. Right, right, right. Um, but you well, know, when you're, you're going to right, I mean, if you're going to be drafted, that concentrates your mind. And also, I think people were different when they had examples and experiences of shared sacrifice. Um, People, I I noticed that among the generation ahead of me, people who had been in the military as kind of just, you know, not as a career, but just being drafted for a year or two, they had a commonality of experience that they could rely on with each other um, as a way of kind of bridging social issues. The lack of having a major opponent or alternative to our way of life has also made us just kind of lazy, uh, right. we we talk all you know, we we just say, you know, we're the West are capitalism, it's not a great thing. The reason people can talk that way is because they've never seen any real alternative to it. Yeah, they've right. never really experienced, you know, a command economy. And the people who hate socialism don't really know what socialism is. And the people who love socialism have never really experienced it. So this is a bunch of you know, people in the West all talking about stuff that they really don't have never seen don't understand, have never experienced and think that their own system by comparison to everything else kind of sucks because, you know, it's not as perfect as they want it to be. And they've never had to really cooperate to make it any better um, because it's, you know, as it is, it's pretty good. I mean, it satisfies and it basically keeps most people happy enough. A friend of mine said to me, don't you ever worry that, you know, the whole social order that at some point, you know, inequality or whatever, you know, the, your pet issue. And I said, as long as there are Xboxes, 400 channels of TV and free porn, revolution is not in the cards.
0: Right. And he, he found that
1: a very cynical answer. I said, you know, yeah. revolution happens when people feel like they're out, they don't have anything else to do, including leisure time. And we are we are a society that lives on leisure time. But this is you know, far afield field of expertise. Um, I think, again, it's part of the affluence problem where everything looks easy.
0: Last question. So what, sure. what's one thing out of the book that you think is, could be most impactful, like to, to everyone, like one thought, I've talked about a couple of things. Is there one kind of takeaway that people can wrap their arms around from the book that it should most impactful for, for us as a society's uh, generations?
1: I think it's the point about narcissism. Um, you know, most people, I, I once I asked a friend who's a psychologist, and I said, uh, you know, I, I'm one of those guys, I spend a lot of time on TV and social. I said, am I narcissistic? And he said, true narcissists never ask themselves that question. Uh, and I, he said, so you're perfectly healthy if you're worried about it. I think it would be really good for people to say, am I, you know, am I being too self-centered? Am I being narcissistic? Do I actually listen to other people? Um, You know, am I too invested in my own beliefs about things to be a reasonable person and hear the truth? Because one of the things I say at the end of the book, you know, experts bear a lot of responsibility for screwing up, making mistakes, accidentally killing people, you know, famines, plagues, wars. Experts are not perfect. We make mistakes all the time. But we need to engage more with the public. And the public's job is to actually be willing to hear us when we talk. Right. You know, when when I've been asked, maybe the thing I can leave you with is people have said, well, how do we heal that rift? And I say, look, experts, you need to engage with experts, you the citizens, but engage with them by asking questions. Experts love to answer questions. Ask us stuff and keep asking us stuff, but listen to the answers you're getting. Instead of just seeing if you can find the place where we run out of you know, answers or that we get something wrong. Um, if, you're, if you're asking a doctor about heart disease, I, I actually had a guy say to me once, you know, the thing about eggs, doctors being wrong about eggs, it proves that they really don't know anything about heart disease. And I said, that's just stupid. I said, I'm sorry, you know, I don't, I hate to use the word stupid, but if you think that doctors not understanding how we metabolize cholesterol in eggs means that doctors don't understand anything about heart disease, you're not really interested in hearing from a doctor you're interested in just um, you know proving that you're smarter than a doctor and I said I guarantee you that if you become short of breath and have chest pains you're you're gonna look for the guy that you just said doesn't know anything about heart disease right you that you all you will be praying that that's the guy who picks up the phone when you call 911
0: That's great. Well, Tom, thank you very much for talking to us today. It was great hearing uh, an amazing perspective, amazing book. And I think that people who are running customer loyalty programs can learn learn a lot from it. So I appreciate the time.
1: My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, thanks. Take care. I'm Mark Johnson from Loyalty360. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please check back to Loyalty360.